Good morning, family. How's everybody? You should be great. Bafana, Bafana made it. Come on. Woohoo! I, uh, I try to stay up and watch, but I couldn't get beyond the, the 90th minute, and I was like, I could see this going to penalties, and I couldn't handle that after what the Springboks did to us. So, but they made it. So uh, wonderful, wonderful. While we're focusing on our young adults, it's our privilege today to welcome here among us our new Year of Your Life group for 2024. So they, most of them joined us yesterday and started their journey with us. Some are still on their way. So I'm gonna ask the Year of Your Lifers, won't you please stand? Just stand so we can see you. Yeah, give them a really good round of applause. So wonderful to have you with us and join with us this year. And uh, we trust you keep that new smell for a, for a while. It's uh, just the Year of Your Life is such a great program that's been so instrumental in the life of our community and discipling our, our young people and just creating a space where they can grow in the sense of their relationship with the Lord, also in terms of their calling and their vocation and the life skills that they need to go far in life. And, you know, we've got youngsters now all over the world that are serving uh, not so young anymore, many of them, like me, serving in many different capacities, but being a blessing to the kingdom of God. So won't you stretch out your hands to them, and let's just bless them. Father, we thank you for everyone of the Eurovie lifers, those that are still on their way, and we just speak your blessing and your favor and your grace over them. Thank you, Lord, that you will guide them by your spirit in this year, that this will be a life-changing year for them a time of really getting to know you, of walking closer with you, that'll, that'll set them in, in rhythm for the rest of their lives, Father. Thank you for the lessons they will learn, the sense of community that they can develop, and we just bless them. We speak your protection and your provision over them also, in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen. We also have an opportunity for our younger people here at Hatfield where we offer really good community housing, as we call it. And um, we, if you have a, a young person, a student, or if you are a young person, student, looking for accommodation, a place that is a home away from home, please come and speak to our team and let them tell you more about our community housing, which is a safe, comfortable environment where you, where you have Christian leaders and we create a, an ethos that is good for young people to grow up in as they pursue their studies and the careers that they have. And our team will be in the foyer afterwards and I can't do the school, cool skulk move and just slap this on like he did in that announcement because this is real time. But they will be wearing these wonderful t-shirts that you'll see with community housing on them in the foyer. So if you want more information for yourself or for you know, somebody that you may know, then please go and connect with them and they'll give you more information. So today we, we kick off with the second part of, second session of our series that we've entitled Fixed. And that title comes from the book of Hebrews 12 where it says, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And already this morning we've had such a fantastic time of fixing our eyes on Jesus. And it's, it's in that vein and that space that I want to continue. And today's message is entitled, Fixed on His Brilliance. And what we're going to do is go from Hebrews 1 verse 5 all the way through to verse 14, which is the first chapter of Hebrews. Last week, I quickly alluded to chapter one to four, uh, verse one to four, but today I wanna to carry on with Hebrews one, verse five. Now, if you read Hebrews one, then you'll, you'll see there's a word that appears quite a lot, and it's the word angels. And there's a lot of talk about angels, and I'm gonna tell you just now why that happens. But let me begin with verse five. And, uh, and, and in this verse, I I want to give you the structure that I want to use to walk through this chapter of the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 1 verse 5, it says the following, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today you have become my father. The structure that I want to use is three points that I think the book of, of the chapter 1 of Hebrews covers for us is this, God speaks, it's the first point, the second point is Jesus' brilliance, and the third point is Jesus' divinity. God speaks, Jesus' brilliance, and Jesus' divinity. 
Now, when we st- why are we we're doing the book of Hebrews? And, and just to remind you, last week we said the book of Hebrews was written, we don't know by whom exactly. There's lots of different theories and discussions, but we don't exactly know for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. But the book of Hebrews was written around 65 AD to a community that was living in Rome that had a Jewish background, as I said last week. And this community was starting to be tested both externally by some of the just persecutions that were beginning to arise. There was the, in AD 49, uh, there was the exile of some of their leaders from, from Rome and some Christians were kicked out with Jews out of Rome. Uh, there was, and, and in that time, there was an increasing discomfort that they were feeling from the people around them, both the Romans and the Jews, these Christians. And, both, and also internally, they were facing challenges because this was now 30 years after Jesus, and so some of them were starting to doubt whether this Jesus is really the person they're supposed to follow. Is he really the Messiah? Is he really the one that's going to lead them to the kingdom of God? And also, there was developing some thoughts, competing thoughts about who Jesus really is, and what, what, how do we best describe Jesus, and what is the truth of Jesus, and, and there were different teachings that was beginning to arise, and some was just one degree or two degrees off And so the writer of the book of Hebrews writes to encourage these Christians to fix their eyes on Jesus. But he also does is he then reminds them of the truth of who Jesus is. And that's what we're going to see in this chapter also. The first point I want to make is God speaks. I'm sure like you, like me, you've considered this amazing truth that God speaks. If God never spoke, we wouldn't know him. But he speaks. He makes it possible for us to know him because he's not quiet. He's not hidden somewhere and we think there might be a God. You and I, when we come to this God, the God of the Bible, we see how he puts himself out there. He puts himself front and center and he speaks. Speaking is self-revelation. It's making yourself known. Why do we speak? Predominantly we speak because we want to have relationship. And this relational God speaks. If you go to Genesis 1 and you read Genesis 1, you work through Genesis 1, it's amazing that in Genesis 1 verse 3, for instance, it says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then God said, and the, and the earth was created and the, and the water and, the, and, the, and the, the, the ground was separated. And God said, and, there were, and God said, can you see how much he speaks? Right from the word go, he speaks. He's communicating. He's saying, hello, here I am. I want you to know me and I want to tell you who I am. And I'm going to do things to show you, but I'm going to speak to you. And God speaks. And we know that he spoke creation into existence. His speaking is is communication, but it's communication with power, with creative ability because he's God. But I find fascinating is if you drop down to Genesis 1 verse 28, we see this. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And the amazing thing is God doesn't just speak creation into being. He speaks to man. Isn't that fantastic? You know, when he spoke, let there be light, that's like a broad sweeping statement that covered the whole universe, that affected everything in the universe. Let there be light. But here God zooms in and he comes close and he speaks to man. It's in this record, it's the only being that he speaks to directly. God speaks. God speaks to us. God speaks to you. We know this because of the scripture. A scripture is the record of God speaking. None of us were there in the beginning. But God revealed it. God made it known. He spoke it. And his servants record it. So that you and I can understand that this God speaks. 
He communicates to us. Romans 1 verse 20 says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. He revealed himself in such a way that it's impossible, as the scripture says, to actually live on this planet and be a reasonable thinking person and not stop at some point in your life and go, there must be somebody behind all of this because this is too fantastic. This is too ordered. This is too designed and intentional. Like I say, often I love watching nature programs and, and you know many of the nature programs that are produced by the, by the you know, television agencies, they, they don't wanna proclaim creationism so they, they love to speak about evolution and they often have sentences like this. And in evolution we see the design and I go, that is an oxymoron. You cannot say those two words in the same sentence. But they can't help themselves because if you look at this earth, you've got to say, there's an intelligence at work here. God makes himself known. In Hebrews 1, in Genesis 1, God said. In Romans 1, we see how he reveals himself. And in Hebrews 1, we read in verse 1 and 2, that was from last week. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. I said it last week, Jesus is the climax of godly revelation. He came into this world to speak, to speak to us, to tell us what happened from the beginning and what will happen in the future. And in this present reality, that he speaks, we can know him. So God speaks, God speaks to you. And I think that's so fantastic. I can know him because he speaks. The second thing I wanna highlight from Hebrews chapter one, and this is the part where we now get into the angels, is Jesus's brilliance. And by the word brilliance, I mean his radiance, his intelligence, his goodness. He's just brilliant. He is brilliant. Now, why does the author feel the need to talk so much about angels? Now, at the time when he was writing, there was quite a fascination in the Jewish world with angels. And uh, angels were very important in scripture. And so there was a lot about, you know, if you think about the man at the, at the well that wanted to be healed, waited for the angel to stir the water. There was a lot of mythology and ideas about angels. Some people were starting to get a bit too fascinated with angels. And sometimes people think the reason he's talking about angels in Hebrews 1 is because he's wanting to counteract their over-exuberance around angels, but that's not actually the truth. He actually does quite the opposite. He has no negative view about angels. What he's actually doing is he's using a style of argument that is sometimes used in scripture, and it's this argument from, from lesser you will get to appreciate the greater. If you value the lesser, you will appreciate the greater. And so what he does is he talks about angels and he says, angels are brilliant. If you read, for instance, in, in Hebrews 1 verse 7, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. Every time in the scripture you read about an angel, it is a jaw-dropping wow moment. Anybody encountering an angel doesn't just go, oh, well, that's nice. Everybody encounters an angel. It is a moment that you will change your life forever. You will never forget it. Angels are brilliant. Now, he's making an argument from lesser to greater. The way he structures the instrument he uses in this argument is also another way that the writers of the time would often use to convince people of something. And what they would do, and what he does here particularly, is he quotes a lot of the Old Testament. Hebrews 1 is almost all of it quotations from the Old Testament. And so you'll see, as, I, as we put it on the slide, you'll see next to every statement I make, there's a reference to the Old Testament. Because what he's doing is he's just quoting Old Testament scriptures. So he's making this argument, if you appreciate the lesser, you will be even more appreciative of the greater. And let me show you the greater by quoting Old Testament passages for you. 
And what he's trying to do is just bombard his audience with Old Testament quotations. So that by the end they would have no other option but to shake their heads and say, Jesus is greater than the angels. He's building to the greater. And so please note, I'm not going to reference all of them, but every one of these statements is a quote from the Old Testament. And I want to remind you, the Old Testament is not to be discarded by us as Christians. It is the Word of God. The Old and the New Testament together form the inspired Word of God. These believers didn't have a New Testament yet. They were starting to have these documents that were given to them by the apostles and the leaders of the church. But there were also other documents that was being circulated by other leaders. They haven't yet decided which ones is the Bible and which one is the inspired word of God and which is not the canonization of scripture. So they, they had sort of New Testament documents, but a lot of, the, of their faith rested on the Old Testament. And as these people were reading the Old Testament, like the writer of Hebrews, and they started looking back over the Old Testament, they started going, wow, there's Jesus. Wow, there's Jesus again. Wow, there's another reference of Jesus. Because now they've seen Jesus, they started recognizing him in the Old Testament. They started realizing how much of the Old Testament testifies about this Jesus that they have seen and experienced. And so that's why he does. He reaches back and he, and he just throws these quotes. And he says, angels are brilliant. But let me tell you, Angels are the servants, but Jesus is the son. So if angels are fantastic servants, remember Jesus is more than a servant. He's the son. So if you appreciate angels, how much more must you appreciate the son? That comes from Psalm 2 verse 7. He says angels worship Jesus. You have no reference of Jesus worshiping angels, but you have every so often described how the angels worship Jesus. If the angels are worshiping Jesus, it makes sense that you worship Jesus, doesn't it? From the lesser to the greater. Normally that which is considered greater is worshiped by that which is considered lesser. The angels worship Jesus. We see that in Deuteronomy. The angels minister at the throne of Jesus. Let's read Hebrews 1, verse 8 to 9. But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Jesus is set above and from scripture we learn the angels minister at his throne. Angels are fantastic. Angels are great. Angels often are messengers sent from the throne of God to earth to convey important messages. Angels are there to protect, offer protection to the believers. Not to everybody on earth, but to the believers. The scripture says, we'll read it now. But angels come from the throne of God. They minister to Jesus. He's the center. He's the exalted one. Hebrews 1, verse 13 to 14. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Who, who sends them? Jesus sends them. God sends them. So angels are fantastic. Appreciate the angels. Be impressed with them, but don't worship them because they are just a sign of that which is far greater, which is Jesus. Jesus is brilliant. Then the third thing I believe this portion of Scripture tells us is that Jesus is divine. He is God. In, in Hebrews 1 verse 5, it says, You are my son. Today I have become your father. You are my son. Today I have become your father. To whom of the angels did God say, you are my son? But to Jesus, God says, you are my son. Now, we believe in the Trinity. The Trinity 
is the description of who God is. The Trinity is one God, one essence, one substance, three persons. One God, three persons. Three separate and individual persons, but one in essence, one God. And like I said last week, sorry, I'm kicking my water. Like I said last week, that's really difficult to, to describe. God is not three. God is just not just one person. God is one being, one in essence. And in the future, we'll talk about what that word essence means. But three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Co-equal with each other. All pre-existent. That's a very important word, pre-existent. Sometimes people get tripped up by this word. Today I have become your father. And some people have translated that to mean that Jesus hasn't always, wasn't always God. But at some point he became God. God adopted him, adoptionism. God adopted him as the son. But in the past, at some point, there was God the Father, but Jesus was perhaps a very important servant of the Father, a very powerful being, but he wasn't God. Or some even believe that Jesus is, still isn't God. But what the, book, the writer of the book of Hebrews does is he's making this argument that Jesus is God the second person of the Trinity. And he says this, he says, Jesus is the creator, sustainer, and completer of all creation. In, he, in Hebrews 1, verse 10 to 12, we read this. In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. Now, it's very important to remember, when you want to understand Scripture and do interpretation of Scripture, that one of the fundamental truths, the first thing you do when you come to scriptural interpretation is you let Scripture interpret Scripture. Because the whole of the Bible is one coherent teaching. It is one thought. It is one system of truth. So what the Bible says here has to fit in with the rest of the revelation. Otherwise you may read a word and then you take that word and you make that word isolated and then it develops a meaning that is not consistent with the rest of scripture. And this is what the author of the Hebrews, that's why he's quoting the Old Testament and he throws these quotations at us to build a coherent truth about who Jesus is. And what the scripture tells us is that Jesus was there at creation. He was actually the agent of creation. That he created everything. What we believe also is that not only did he exist at creation, he existed in eternity past before creation. Jesus has always been God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is the pre-existent he didn't become God. He didn't come about. Jesus has no beginning. He has always been. And like the Father, like the Spirit, the Godhead has always existed. At some point, the Godhead got together in its Trinity and acted and caused something to come into being out of nothing. In the eternity past of God's existence, there was nothing. At some point. At some point, God spoke and nothing became something. And that something is kept alive by its creator, which is Jesus. So nothing became something, and that something was hung on nothing and is supported by nothing material other than Jesus. Jesus is the sustainer of everything that exists. In him we live and move and have our being. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. That's why sometimes you'll hear people say, when Jesus walked on water, it wasn't actually him walking on water, it was water hanging on him for dear life. 
because he sustains everything. When Jesus walks in and says, Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus has no choice but to come forth because this is the one who spoke him into being, who fashioned him in the first place. This Jesus, nothing can exist if Jesus decides it's done with you. He created everything, he upholds and sustains everything, and he will bring everything to its fulfillment and its end. The scripture says here, there will come a day when he will roll them up like a robe, like garment they will be changed. We know there's gonna come a day when creation as we now know it will be folded up. And the only person that has the authority to do that is Jesus as part of the Godhead. He will come back for us and he will take us to be with him in some new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. We, we will one day understand what all of that means and what that will look like. But he is the only one who has the power to create, to sustain, and to fulfill. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and protector of our faith. No one else, no one else can claim that level of divinity. Now, the, the, one of the words in this sentence is the space where some people get tri tripped up. In verse five, it says, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. Our translation creates a, a feeling or a sense of time that if I, if I relate to that, today I have become your father. I think about my experience. On the 24th of September, 1998, at five o'clock in the morning, I was not a father. And five o'clock in the afternoon, I was a father. Pray for my wife, 12 long hours. We went to the hospital, 12, five o'clock in the morning, and you know, she's gonna deliver. And then she got there, and dilation, and nothing happened. And you know, they had to get creative. And by five o'clock, the doctor came to us and said, listen, if we do not take this baby out now, it's gonna have problems. And so, they cut her open. It was one of the best days of my life because I wanted to study medicine and then got called into the ministry. So the doctor said, come stand here, let me show you. And I was like, Whoa. And then the doctor said, you wanna touch her fallopian tube? Yes. And I was in there with my fingers. And so I know my wife inside and out. I love her. And some say that's why we had four children. Because I, I was there every time. It's like, wow, I was so amazed by this, you know, taking out all the intestines, packing it next to her. It's fantastic. I wanted to volunteer to for ladies that didn't have husbands. And my wife said, no way. You will not do that. But after five on that afternoon of 24 September 1998, I became a father. And sometimes people think that's what this verse means. That God was not a father. And then at some point, he became a father because he adopted Jesus. He chose Jesus from among the angels. Jesus was always there, sort of, you know, Jesus proved himself to be more worth than the others, and so he adopted him and made him his son. Now, that's not what happened. It's a little bit of an unfortunate translation that we have in our language. The Greek word for begotten, it's another way the Bible often puts it. You are my begotten, my only begotten son. Remember John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What does that word begotten mean? Did he get him sometime? That word in the Greek is the word monogenes, monog monogenes, almost is how we would pronounce it, monogenes. And it means unique, unique one. It describes the begotten son as unique in two ways. He is unique and pertaining to the being the only one of its kind in this specific relationship. So Jesus is the begotten son of God. He's the only one that is, relates to the father in that way. He's unique. And the second way that word is applied is he's the unique one in that he's the only one of that class of, and position. There's none other like him. He is unique. So it doesn't mean became the son of God, it means 
having always been the Son of God in this unique relationship with the Father and the Spirit and the only one that fits that classification. This word is, for instance, used in the Old Testament. In Genesis 22, verse 2, we read, Then God said, Take your son, your only, some translations add, begotten son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Maria. So God speaks to Abraham and he says to Abraham, take your son Isaac, your only begotten son. Now if that meant that he was the only boy that Abraham had, then God missed some information. Then God is not all we think he is because, so he can't mean that because how many of you know that Isaac wasn't the only son? At least we know, all of us should know of one other brother. Who was his older brother? Ishmael. Do you know that they were actually, that Isaac was one of eight siblings, brothers? His father had eight sons. So how can God come to him and say, you are, take your son, your only begotten son? Because Isaac wasn't the only son, he was the only unique son in this that God gave Isaac to Abraham and that Isaac was to be the fulfillment of a promise. And so Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, the pre-existent one of the Trinity that has always existed in that position, then comes to earth and does not leave his divinity behind, but takes on humanity. So this God who is 100% God takes on all the characteristics of a human. And becomes a fully God, fully human at the same time. That's what we believe about the incarnation. Now, at this time, the book of Hebrews was writing, written, there was already discussions about this. And some were saying that Jesus either left his divinity behind and became a human. Others were saying, no, he was a God, but he never really became a human. He was only divine, not human. Because it's very difficult to try and get those two together. Fully God, fully divine. And these discussions were happening and and the arguments were building and they were getting quite heated. And up until sort of the end of the third century and the beginning of the third century, there were lots of discussions. And you will know that in the third century under Emperor Constantine, this was causing a lot of friction. And as the world then started becoming more Christianized, they needed to settle this matter. So a council was called. And over 300 of the bishops, these were the overseers of the church from all over the then known Christian world, came together to debate and discuss. At the time, there was a man by the name of Arian, and he was starting to propose very strongly that Jesus wasn't divine and human at the same time when he walked on earth. And uh, so this caused them to have to say, we're gonna, we need to settle our doctrine. What do we actually believe? And so a man by the name of, uh, 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 why do I forget his name now? Uh, Athanasius, sorry. I'm gonna call my fifth son Athanasius. <laughs> so I never forget. A man by the name of Athanasius, who was the, at 27 years old, became the bishop of Alexandria, one of the most influential uh, leading seats of the church at the time, 27. And he meditated on this idea of the incarnation, God and man together. And he started fighting for this truth that Jesus was both God and both man. And so at the council, he made his case so brilliantly and so strongly that eventually when they voted, More than 300 of the bishops, only three did not agree with him. Over 300 of them voted in favor that Jesus is both the son of God and the son of man at the same time while he was on earth. He did not leave his divinity. He remained fully God and took on humanity. And that's what the Orthodox Church, as we are part of, believes today. We believe in the incarnation. And it was, it was then settled in one of the apostles, uh, one of the creeds, the Nicene Creed. Not the Apostles' Creed, sorry. The Nicene Creed. I want to read for you, and it's going to come on the screen, a section of the Nicene Creed. These bishops 
our leaders that came before us that settled this matter. Today, it's no longer something we argue on in the main line of the church. There are fringes, and I'll talk about that just now. We still have struggles. But in the main of the church, this is the Nicene Creed that we believe. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into being, things in heaven and things on earth, who became, because of us men and because of our salvation came down and became incarnate and became man and suffered and rose again on the third day. And he ascended to the heavens and will come to judge the living and the dead. That's just the first section of the Nicene Creed. It's dense, it's theological. But can you hear how they are making a very forceful statement when they say, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made for of one substance with the Father. They are saying, this Jesus is God, nothing less. Now from time to time, and even in our day, you'll hear people come up with thoughts and theories about Jesus that deviate from this just ever so slightly. But we must gotta remember that our fathers fought Athanasius was in exile of his 47 years of, of being the bishop. He was only spent 17, oh, 17 of those years. He was five times placed in exile because there was this controversy. And he fought for it. He gave his life so that you and I don't have to wonder today. But even today, there are some that teach slightly different things. Right now, there's a, there's a, a group of people that's very popular in the Christian world that actually teach that when Jesus came to earth, he left his divinity behind. And so when he was on earth, he was a man, empowered, anointed by the Holy Spirit. And all the miracles he did, he did as a man, was his human power under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And that's why he was able to do all these miracles. Now sometimes I think they want to teach that because that makes you think that therefore under the anointing, you can also do the same things as what Jesus did. But it's, it sounds fantastic, it's just unfortunately not true. While Jesus was on earth, he was God. Let me just ask you this question. If Jesus is the sustainer of everything, if everything depends on him, the earth is hanging off his feet. Now he left his divinity behind and come to earth. Who sustained us then during that time? Did he sort of give it over to the Father and say, you, you know, I'm out of here now, you gotta sustain everything for a while and then took that back up? No, even while he was on earth, everything existed because of him. Those Roman soldiers that lifted their arms to beat him could only do so because he gave them the right to do it. Everything is in him, lives and moves. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Cannot change. He cannot stop being Jesus. So he came and he took on the form of a man. And that's very important. Because only God can die for us and save us from all our sins and give us salvation. Only a man that never sinned can be justified to die in our place. It's the, it's the both. And we'll talk more about that down the line. But that's what we believe. He is God. Has always been. Never stopped being God. And will be God for all eternity. That's why we worship him. That's why we worship this Jesus. That's why we lift him up. Now what does that mean for us? Let me apply it and then I'm, I'm going to finish. Let me first of all say this. God speaks to you. Why would you want to listen to any other voice? He speaks to you. Why would we, if the creator, the sustainer, the fulfiller of the universe has come and speaks to me, both by his word and by the spirit, speaks, why would I want to turn away and listen and give authority to any other voice in my life other than the creator's voice, this Jesus' voice? 
Why would I turn and want to listen to some other gods? Idols. The Bible says idols are the, are the, are the product of our imagination. If you worship an idol, whether that's a system of thought, a belief system, a desire, or whether it's actually some structure, or whether it's actually some little crafted image, you worship that, you are worshiping that which is lesser. You are actually greater than that thing, but you worship it. Instead of worshiping that which is greater than you, Jesus, why would you do that? Why would you give that voice of an idol? Okay, can we step in? Why would you let an ancestor have more authority in your life and speak to you more than what Jesus can speak to you? Why would you have a spiritist or a medium or a tarot card reader or a zodiac sign have any voice in your life if you can go to Jesus? Why would you have any spiritual authority? Because nowadays, and this is not new, but you know, it feels like some people can't get to Jesus. They have to go to the prophet, the apostle, or the pastor. And the prophet and the apostle and the pastor will tell them what Jesus says. Why would you go to a human to hear God's voice if you can go to the creator of that human directly? Why would you do that? Now, now before I shoot myself in the foot completely, let me just say this. I'm a pastor. Okay. Do I have no use? No, I believe I'm called by God to serve this congregation, to speak to you the word of God. And I'm anointed for that task and set apart for that task, not on my own, but that's my job. But I am a human. I can miss it. I hear in part and see in part. I am not the voice of God. As long as I stay centered and fixed on Jesus, I've got used to this community. But the moment I start deviating from that, there goes the power, there goes the anointing, there goes my usefulness. That's why I, I need to lead this congregation with all the authority I need, but I, I need to do it from within a, a community of leaders. That's why we have an eldership, and I lead from the eldership that is both staff and non-staff people, elected by you, nominated by you. I have an executive team that work with me, an operations team, the pastoral team, the shepherds. We work together so that I, with them, hear the voice of God. I often become the one that speaks it. And a lot of what I say is not actually me, somebody else that thought it up, but I'm the voice. Not the only voice, but I am a, an important voice. But I'm human, and that's why I need them to help me understand and guide me in what God is saying. And then sometimes if I happen to get it wrong, they're the ones that will correct me and they're the ones that will, in a sense, protect you from me, my humanity. So why would you come and take every word I say and make that your gospel if you've got the living word of God that speaks about Jesus? Amen. He speaks to you. Come and sit at his feet. He is your creator. Why would you go to anything else to find out why you were created, why you exist and who you are? What your purpose in life is. Why would you go to anybody else? Why would you give anybody else or anything else the authority in your life that only your creator can have? To tell you, I made you, I knitted you together in your mother's womb. You are the fulfillment of my dream. I have a plan and I want to make you part of that plan. Only he can tell you that because only he created you. You live because he sustains you. And he will in the future fulfill the plan of your life. Why would we go to anything else? There's a supernatural realm. Yes, God created this world with a supernatural realm. And in that supernatural realm are beings. Those beings are supposed to serve him, reflect him, worship him. Some of them don't. Some of them fell away. And some of them are deceived. And some of them want to keep you from going to him. And so they'll tell you lies and they'll try and deceive you. Why would you go to them? Go to Jesus. He made you. For some of us, it's not the supernatural that's our problem. It's the natural. Why, why would I go to something like science to tell me my reason for existence, my purpose in life? 
Now, we don't have a problem with science as a Christian. I love science. Science forms part of our exploration of who God is. Science is just a way that God has revealed himself. And the more the scientists study, the more they discover about how God made this universe. So Christians, we are not against science. We love science. But I'm not gonna go to Newton to say to me, why do I exist? Only Jesus can answer that. Only Jesus. He's the creator. Let me tell you how brilliant he is. There's a guy by the name of Hugh Ross a Christian who's a cosmologist, and he wrote in his book, Creation and Time, many of you will know about it. At, at the time, he said, there are 60 conditions that has to exist within a very small margin of error for life in the universe to be possible. Today, they've done more studies. They think it's more like 140 conditions, but let's, he said 60 conditions. He said, at least three of those conditions has to be met to such a minuscule exact point that mathematically you will say it's one part to 1037. That means one in 10 with 37 noughts behind it. Do you know how many, how much 10 with 37 noughts is behind it? He says, if there's life to be possible in the universe, at least three conditions has to be that exact that they get it right, that they hit the mark that is one in 10 with 37 noughts behind it. So he gives us an example just to understand what that looks like. If you had to take it like a 10 cent coin, a dime in America, small, and you have to fill the whole of the northern continent of America, that's Canada, America, Mexico, you fill the whole of the northern continent of America with dimes, all the way to the moon, that's 250,000 miles. If you fill the whole of the continent of America, all the way to the moon with dimes. Do you think that's a lot? That's a lot. And you did that with another thousand continents, another billion, sorry, not thousand, another billion continents of America. So you have a billion continents the size of America filled with dimes, little coins, all the way to the moon. How many of you think that's a lot? If you took one of those coins and you painted it red and mixed it in there, and I came to Neil and I said, Neil, you have one chance to pick out this one red penny amongst the billion all the way to the moon pennies. How many of you will bet your life, your house, your car, that he's going to get it right? As brilliant as Neil is, I'm not going to bet my life on that. That's how exact at least three of the conditions has to be for life to exist in the universe. Isn't evolution fantastic? That it got it so precise. It is a creator. Who's this creator? Jesus. Are you impressed with his brilliance? How brilliant he is. How specific, how caring he is. Not only is he your creator, he's your king. Worship to you, will you join me please? He's your king. If Jesus is your king, why would you worship at the throne of anything else? Why would you give your love, your faithfulness, your allegiance, your life? for anything else. If you worship yourself, you are selling yourself short. You could be worshiping Jesus. If you're worshiping money, sorry now, you could be worshiping Jesus. If you're worshiping fame, it can only last for a little bit. You're selling yourself short, you could be worshiping Jesus. Because it's only Jesus that qualifies for your worship. Anything else you worship is less than you and therefore it will diminish you and make you less than yourself. Only Jesus made you, loves you, knows who you are, knows who he made you to be and when I worship him, when I fix my eyes upon him, he makes me more and more like him. I become greater because of his power in my life. Whatever else we worship will cause us to be enslaved and lose our freedom. Why would we worship anything but this Jesus? Why would we give our hearts? I've got one life. I don't want to mess around. I don't want to fool around and, and perhaps get it wrong. I want to go with Jesus, the author, the creator, the perfecter of my faith. I'm sure that would be your story also. I want to read this quote. 
An agnostic Robert Jastros writes the following. Many of you would know this quote. After all these scientific discoveries that has happened, he said, scaling the mountains of ignorance, scientists have been scaling the mountains of ignorance, conquering the highest peak, pulling themselves over the final rock to be greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Because God speaks, and he speaks to you. He's brilliant. Get caught up in him. Fix your eyes upon him. He's your king. Worship him. Join with the angels and we will worship him for eternity. Won't you stand with me? I've asked the team and we're going to finish in a moment, but I've asked the team to lead us. I think it's just appropriate to have a moment to respond to this Jesus and to again just proclaim his greatness. And when you do this, I want this to be a bit of a prophetic activity that you do. It's not just singing, but it's saying, Lord, I'm proclaiming my belief in you. I want my life to be aligned with you. And I'm gonna pray that the Holy Spirit, that while we sing this song, that will speak to you. If there's any voice that you are being distracted by in your life right now, won't you say, Lord Jesus, I wanna listen to you. You can use other voices to speak about you but I need to know you. I'm gonna invite you as I end this service, come to the front. Our team will be here. They wanna pray with you. Don't waste another moment of your life with second best. Give your life to Jesus. Let him set you free from the bondage and the slavery of sin and, and, and help you live the life that you've in, he have intended and created you to live. So right now as I end the service, just come to the front and say, I need to give my life to Jesus, to the person that wants to pray with you. If you hear also and you sense there's been things distracting you from Jesus and fully living for him, come and let somebody pray with you and say, Lord, forgive me for that. I wanna live for you. And invite the Holy Spirit to help you and strengthen you in that. Please remember to join Letitia at the Connect Lounge if you wanna find out more about our church. After you've come for prayer, they'll be there for you. Remember to meet the team, community, our community housing in the foyer also. May the Lord bless you. May the Spirit of God in the presence of Christ, be with you every day and every moment and continue. Let's praise his name and declare his greatness in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Please come to the front. If you're joining us online, you will see an email address where you can reach out to us and somebody will connect with you and pray with you also. Thank you for being with us today. May the Lord bless you.